Welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scotch Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello! In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photo, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Riggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great backlash! And this week we are with a familiar face from Scottish television news. It's BAFTA and Royal Television Society nominated broadcaster Mike Edwards. Guys, thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute honour to be here. Uh, it really is fantastic. I can't wait to get going. No, listen, thank you for, for joining us. It's, it's an honour myself, so it's, it's great to have you. So we're just going to jump straight into the magazine. So the, the publication we have today is a shoot magazine and it's from the 5th of February 1972. So as we do, we'll start from the front and we'll just look at the front cover. It's a photograph of Wolves keeper Phil Parks collecting a ball in the air. And he has a skip cap on, which to me looks sort of like a railroad cap or something like that, like a, a railroad driver would wear. Um, he's wearing no gloves. Uh, he's got a plain green top with outfield shorts and socks as well. And sort of just hovering about close by is Malcolm McDonald in Newcastle United, looking for any mistakes to pounce on. Well, see, a, Phil's catching that ball, but you see his eye line, he's already looking for somewhere to throw it. Yeah. yeah. But um, in, in the background as well, I think it's Frank Monroe in the background as well for Wolves looking on. Yeah, I, I, uh, the Wolves picture to the left, the Wolves player to the left yeah. of the picture. I thought that was John Richards, but right, you're, okay. you're probably right. Actually, Frank Monroe, another another great Scot, indeed. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm struggling to identify the Wolves player who's sort of in between in the in the middle background. <laughs> Equally. I'm trying to work out if this is St James's Park or if this is uh, an original Molyneux. Mm. Um, I, I've been, I've driven past St James's Park and I was surprised it's actually right in the middle of Newcastle. Yeah. Uh, but I, I cannot recall trees. Yeah. So I would be struggling to say actually where this is. I mean, what what I do love about the crowd there, and I've mentioned this before, I love the roofless. The, you know the yeah. the aspect of. Um, stadiums and, and I think it's because when there is a roof there's a shadow that builds up so you don't see the crowd right up to the back whereas this it's like it's crowd 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 and then skyline yeah. or it's trees and something like that so I just I mean it's like the old ham old Hamden as well when it was a beautiful sunny day like so the, the the Scottish Cup finals you always had the blue skies and it was just this you know it was a defined crowd skyline and I just love that and you know, the, again, we talk about the photographs. So there's a there's a fuzziness to it. It's not it's not perfect. You know, yeah. definition. Well, there was no like digital that. digital yeah. cameras. But it was. It uh, just it just looks so much better. It looks yeah, you know, natural and just, and granular and earthy and just the way football was in those days. The other thing, I don't know if you if it's too early in the <laughs> in the show for a, a story, but when I um, I grew up in the Highlands of Scotland, so all the football grounds I went to were like that. Like that, yeah. And the first time I went to Celtic Park or Ibrox or Hamden, I can't remember which one it was, what I was staggered by at half-time was the blue cigarette smoke that would come billowing out from underneath 
the, the, the roof off the stand. Yeah. Um, obviously, long before Hillsborough, long before uh, Bradford, long before Hazel, long before crowd safety was ever a consideration. Of course, the first thing guys do at halftime, yeah. spark up a cigarette. Yeah. And it would billow out from under the, uh, from under the, the, the roof. But obviously here, glorious sunshine, that would strike me as being probably uh, either the first couple of weeks of the season because the grass the is so yeah, full. Yeah. There's no mud. There's no mud on the players' legs. So I think you're talking about not long after the season started and it's a lovely summer, mm-hmm. summer's day. Certainly looks it. So just the other, it mentions the other thing. So it's six pence back then, so it's six old pence. Um, and it says there's a focus on George Best in full colour. Now just the thing about the front cover here is there's not much else going on. So you've got the picture, yeah. you've got the, the shoot, um, title at the top but then it's the feature I mean some other magazines later on there's features everywhere and in the corner competitions and things and it ends up taking up but this is focused on just the action of the football so I much prefer it in that way so we'll take a, a little delve inside and just look at pages 2 and 3 and we have Crosstalk with Pat Jennings and Pat Crennan so Crosstalk We've mentioned before as well was usually when there's important games coming up and you get the captains or um, important players from either side just knocking questions and ideas and things together. So we've got Pat Jennings, of Spurs in Northern Ireland here, and Pat Crennan of Man United in Scotland. Um, and the the premise behind this is England are currently in the quarterfinals of the European Championships, and the next World Cup in Germany is only two years away. And there's a lot of controversy which has surrounded England's style of play since 1966, with questions being asked such as, how good are they? Are they a great side or are they just plain ordinary or what? Pat and, well, Pat both take a look at this. So Jennings starts off and he says, the 1966 side couldn't compete with the recent Brazil side for flair, but equally as good in every other aspect. And he says, entertainment is nice, but England must consider it incidental. Now, Pat Crerin replies, he says, Sorry, Pat, but entertainment is even more important at international level. Alf Ramsey's job is to make England win, but why be so afraid? And Jennings replies, and he says, It's impossible to put yourself in Alf's shoes and think up more effective tactics. I wouldn't change much. Now, Crerin then, his reply to that is, For a start, I'd scrap the 4-3-3 formation. He says, Colin Bell is the best midfielder in the country. He's too good not to be playing regular international football. I think England lack most in attack. There should be four players playing up there the whole time. Now just at that, you know, the idea that nowadays any team would have four players attacking constantly is just it's unheard of. But Jennings says, Sir Ralph won the World Cup without wingers, so it seems he can do without them. He also adds, it's good to see Rodney Marsh at last getting into the running. And Crerin replies, I think Sir Alf ignores wingers as there were so few knocking on the door when he was appointed. Malcolm Allison rates Marsh, but I have seen little of him myself. And Jennings says, take it from me, Paddy, he's a genius. Um, Crerin replies, between 66 and 70, British football was in a state of decline. And as a new refereeing code means that there's more room for skill. He also then says, I suppose England are second only to Brazil for skill. So I, there's some of the replies from Crerin that seems to be sort of contradicting himself a little bit. He's saying, no, England aren't all that, but they're second only to Brazil. Um, Jennings says, I'm with you there about the, the skill. They have a wonderful chance of winning the European Championships this year. But I'm not confident that they'll win the World Cup in 74. And as we know, they never even got to that World Cup. So... 
Uh, Kreren says, I think they'll have a good chance too of winning the European Championships. But I quite like this little, I think it's a little dig, he says. But only if the finals are played in England. <laughs> uh, I can't see them as World Championships again. Uh, Jennings at this point takes a little bit of a tangent and he says, what do you think about British internationalists being paid £60 per match? And Kreren says, it's ridiculous. Big games can rake in up to 130,000, and if they paid the players 1,000 each, then that would only be 26,000, including subs. So a, a little, you know, back and forth there. Jennings is obviously quite um, confident and quite um, supportive of England. Thinks a, a really good team, and you know they're going to win the European Championships for a start. Crennan is a little bit more standoffish about it. You know, um, I mean, ultimately, I think Crennan was probably more more correct than, than Jennings on that and it's interesting to see that you know Jennings is talking about England qualifying for the 74 World Cup uh, which they didn't yeah. uh, and neither did they qualify for the 78 World Cup yeah. uh, and he himself played in you know almost a generation later in the in the 82 World Cup and the 86 World yeah. Cup and Crerand a little bit before my time I don't really remember him playing but my dad always spoke of him as a bit of a Rolls Royce he had apparently his distribution and his, his hold up play and his his vision was was phenomenal but he lacked a bit of a bit of pace mm. so and of course uh, he was a, an established Scottish international but of course he never got anywhere near the World Cup but interesting yeah. that I heard Rodney Marsh do an after dinner uh, um speech once and he was so self-deprecating absolutely brilliant right. and he talks about his lack of England caps and his run-ins with Alf Ramsey and he said that uh, he got called up at the last minute for an England camp for an international when somebody called off and he got called up and he had a sit down with Alf Ramsey and Ramsey said to him I'll be honest with you Rodney I don't think you've got the strength of the stamina to uh, to last the full 90 minutes at, at your rate of play. And he said, what I'll do is I'll start you, but I'll pull you off at half-time. And he said, well, that's great, because at Queen's Park Rangers, all we got at half-time was a cup of tea. <laughs> and uh, and apparently that was his last uh, yeah, yeah, his yeah. last run in an England jersey. But I remember him playing. He was a phenomenal player. Yeah. Uh, and But then at that time, Scotland as well. In fact, all the home countries had yeah. such... Uh, uh, you know, a strength and depth of 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 squad to choose from. That great players mm. never got a sniff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you often. I mean, that's that's a golden question: is why is why was that a golden generation for so many? And I guess maybe the influx in uh, foreign players into the leagues taking over a lot of them has meant that they're just not getting that experience at a higher level. But I mean, who knows? Who who has the answer to that? But, but, I mean, I think it's a demographic thing. I think it's a cyclical thing. I think it's a societal thing. It's a it's it's and it's not just Scotland. In that you have, I mean, look at the, the golden generation seventy four, seventy eight, eighty two, and eighty six, and then you know, arguably it started to dip a bit, and uh, you know that could be for a hundred years, mm. and then just that cohort of players, men and women, yeah. in, the, in you know Scotland's women's team qualified for the World Cup. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. But, you know, the Scotland's men's game has just absolutely bottomed out. Well, why is that? But I think it's just one of those things, and it's it's like a sine wave. It will come back up in X decades. Do you know, I absolutely agree with you. That I've said that before. I think it is cyclical. Um, and But, you know, the thing is, all it needs is something like 20 players to yep. come through. And I'm saying all it needs, but 20 players coming through the same sort of time, same sort of period... And you've got a team that that could do anything, yeah, exactly. You know, so yeah. I mean, you know, look at 
some of the teams, okay, well, it's probably not a great argument to say the Denmark team that won the European Championships in 92, they were lucky to be there. Yeah. But Denmark's a tiny country. Yeah. Okay, they were kind of close to home in that it was in Scandinavia. So mm. there was all sorts of, you know, but um, Greece, when they won the European Championships in in Oh, 2004. Eight, 2004. Yeah, 2004. I mean, again, the cohort that they've got to choose from is, okay, Greece is a biggish country and the greater Athens area has a, has a large population, but, you know, it's still, by comparison to, to Germany or yeah. Brazil, it's tiny. Yeah. yeah. As I say, all you need is for, for you to improve and the other teams to maybe be in a bit of a lull and things like that can happen. It's... That's fingers crossed. That's what's going to happen. And you for need, Scotland. you need, and I'm sorry to say this: Scotland are never jammy. We are never <laughs> jammy, and sometimes you just need to be jammy. Well, yeah, we've yeah. never been jammy. Well, we, I suppose we were against Wales and th- the Joe Jordan thing. I suppose yeah. you could count uh-huh. that no as fair point. jammy. Yeah. And also, I was at Ibrox. I think Hamden was being rebuilt when Scotland beat Sweden. And uh, John McGinley, a good Highland boy, got, mm-hmm. got clean through after about three minutes and scored a great goal. And Ravelli was quite a good keeper. And then Scotland just parked two buses for the, and got bombarded for the rest of the game. And Jim Layton had a crazy game that yeah. day. I, I think we, I think there might have been an offside question on the goal, but my goodness me, we were jammy that day, and thank goodness we were. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so we're shifting on to page four, and this is Ask the Expert. So, <laughs> uh, you know, things like this I love, because this is before the, the age of the internet, where you could just Google answers. Um, and it used to be that, you would have to write into a newspaper. You would, if they replied to it, you'd maybe wait a month, two months to get the reply, and then you would have, you know, your ammunition to go back to the pub to to put your mate in his place that you were right all those months ago when they came up with a, a question and answer. So we'll go through a few of these here. Um, so the first one is from Thorolf Folkdal from Norway, and he asks, is it true Jimmy Greaves was sold to Spurs from AC Milan for £99,999? And if so, why? So the answer is, it is true. And the reason was so that Jimmy didn't have the possible mental strain of being the first £100,000 player. I think that's fascinating. It's a brilliant story. And most probably true, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Because, well, I think we we all know how fragile the the um, psyche of an athlete or an artist yeah. is yeah. and uh, you know in our generation most players just wanted a ball wanted to go out and play before any of the other money you know sponsorship uh, social media all these yeah. other things came into play these guys just wanted to wanted to you know get out and do it but you're absolutely right yeah. that's that could have just made the difference between somebody being a hero and a zero well exactly one pound of a difference is the, the difference between the pressure that's put on them as well and you know, fair play to them for that, for actually thinking about that at those points, because you you wouldn't think a lot of the the mental aspects of things would have been at the forefront of people's thoughts back then. I mean, remember remember the story when um, Trevor Francis became the first million pound player. Yeah, and it, oh, thankfully it didn't seem to do him any harm, but mm. that was that was huge news at the time yeah. in 70, 76, 77 when he when he signed for Forest. Yeah, well, and then he went on and won the European Cup. Yeah, twice. well, I was just listening to a podcast actually with Francis, and he says that every sportsman's dinner he does, he gets introduced as mm-hmm. the first million pound player, but he goes, I've won two European Cups and <laughs> 52 yeah. times for Ireland, but everybody focuses on first million pound player, which technically that was really nothing to do with, do with him. Mm-hmm. It was just a business decision that he yeah. wasn't responsible for. And, uh, you know, his agent could have just said, no, it's 999,999 yeah. pounds. Yeah. 
There we go. So next one up, Heather Bain of Midlothian asks, in order of capacity, what are the six largest grounds in Scotland? Um, so the answer from shoot here is Hamden. It says now holds 134,000, <laughs> but the record was 149,547. Then next is Rangers with 90,000, Celtic with 80,000, Hibs with 60,000, Hearts with 49,000, and St Mirren with 46,500. 46,5,000. It just shows you how different the world was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and... Uh, Again, you're talking about the Taylor report and that, obviously the Hazel and and, and uh, Hillsborough and Bradford. I mean, all these um, disasters. And, and of course, in Scotland, there were two Ibrox disasters and yeah. suddenly people... And then I think all this came at the same time as crowds at football dwindled because people had other things to do. Mm-hmm. And we, we, you and I grew up, it was that's all there was and you just became absolutely wrapped by it. But then clearly people and also maybe couldn't necessarily afford to go to football twice yeah. a week. Yeah. So next one is from Ian Gibb from Cumbernauld. So there's a few um, people from Scotland writing in here. Ian Gibb from Cumbernauld says, My friend says no club in Britain has ever won the English or Scottish League Championship without dropping a point. I'm convinced Rangers achieved this. Who is right? So the answer from Shoot is, No English club has ever done it. Rangers won every game in the season 1898-99. But they then caveat that by saying they can't be compared with modern times, though. Competitions and pressure was less back then, and the number of games is now twice as big. I mean, that comes back to try to compare different eras. It's impossible, and it's it's I don't know why people even try and do it because it's just there's different there's different laws to the game. There's you know there's as I say there there's like half the games played for that. I mean, it's a great great feat. But you can't compare it with anything modern. Um, so so we've got a few answers there. We'll move on to page eight. And this is a section I'm sure you remember. Have we not did England won the World Cup? I mean, for goodness sake. For some reason, I bypassed that. So we're on the You Are The Ref. Oh, no. So this this is um, you know a, a staple of the, the shoot magazine. Um, there's two scenarios, and they're detailed in three separate pictures for each. And I'm just going to have a look at the first scenario here. So, number one of the scenario is a keeper saves the ball on the line but then covers up over it. The ref thinks it's over the line and blows the whistle to award the goal but then realises that the ball was still in play. The referee awards a drop ball. However, time has run out for the first half before this happens and he ends up um, blowing for the half-time without the drop ball. So the second part of the scenario is the teams line up for the second half and one team is a player short, so the centre-forward makes no attempt to restart play, and the referee cautions him. The third part of the scenario was a few minutes later, a player appears on the touchline, and the ref thinks he's the missing player, so he signals to him to come onto the field of play. The referee later realises he's a substitute and takes no action. So out of those three scenarios, or the three steps, is where is the problem? <laughs> I think Apart from the referee VAR. doesn't have any control <laughs> over the game. I'd be on to the VAR, I think. <laughs> so it's, it's the third one um, that's the problem. So the fact that the referee's not been notified of the substitution, irrespective of whether he's just beckoned them on, means that he should caution the player. Um, I th- if we go back to the first one about you know the time running out before the drop ball, I think nowadays you would... Yeah. Maybe back then there wasn't playing this additional time yeah. and things, yeah. but back well, then. It's the referees are so 
timekeeper, so yeah. he decides yeah. when, yeah. The, when the game's yeah. over. I think it's just <laughs> highlights. Should it ever need highlighting, what a thankless job it must yeah. be <laughs> to be a referee. I just... Uh, no thanks. Yeah, it's, it's certainly something I, I just would stay well clear of, and I don't, you know, I can't imagine why anybody would want to do that. So we'll just jump on to page nine. Okay, so this is Bournemouth's Phil Boyer, and he's talking about his sensational goal scoring partner, Ted McDougall. And it says, Ted's a terror in the box. So shoot, say here, seldom does a striker outside the top two divisions in the Football League continually hog the headlines. But one such goal grabber has been doing it for nearly two seasons, and that's Bournemouth's Ted McDougall. 49 goals in season 1970-71, and already 20 in the bag this season. And they continue, like all renowned strikers, McDougall has to have most of his chances set up for him, and this is where his partner Phil Boyer comes in. Shoot asked Phil what it was like to play alongside the country's most sought-after forward. So Phil talks about Ted, and he says, Ted is the most lethal striker I have ever seen. If he gets the ball anywhere inside the box, opposing defences can start thinking about lining up for the kickoff, as that is pretty much what will happen because it will be from a certain goal. It's strange because outside the penalty area, Ted seems far less dangerous <laughs> and even slower in his movements. We hear this all the time, don't we? But show him the area between the 18 yard line and a pair of goalposts, and he's like a man possessed. Phil then goes on to describe the types of moves they work on at training. And then he reflected on their earlier days, both at York City. He says, We soon teamed up together at Bootham Crescent. It seemed to be a tailor-made combination. Ted was good at popping them in, even in those days. Um, could Phil see the two of them together in the second division, or even Division 1? So he says, Division 2, definitely. We'll wait and see what happens after that. So just a wee spoiler here. Bournemouth finished third that season, three points off second place Brighton, and were promoted. Aston Villa won the league. And Ted moved from Bournemouth in September '72 to Man United for two hundred thousand pound. So we'll just take a wee quick look at Ted McDougall yeah, he didn't here. Didn't last long at United, did yeah. he? Yeah. Didn't so, last long particularly anywhere. Yeah. Ed, Edward John McDougall was his, his full name, and he was born in 1947 in Inverness. Yep. Uh, he started off with the Liverpool reserves, I think, um, between '66 '67, and that's when he then moved to York City for a couple of seasons. Um, 84 appearances in the league, 34 games. And then he was Bournemouth between 69 72, 146 league appearances and 103 goals, which is absolutely phenomenal. Um, he appeared 18 times for Man United in the league, scoring five goals. West Ham, 24 appearances, five goals. Then he was at Norwich City for a few years, 112 with 51 goals. And then he's, he's bounced amongst a lot of others. So he was on loan to South Africa to the Jewish right, Guild. Yeah. Uh, Southampton, he had another, uh, he had a spell there. Weymouth, Bournemouth, Detroit Express, Blackpool, Salisbury, Poole, Totten, Gosport, Borough, Florida, Athena in Australia, St George, Budapest in Australia, Totten again, Andover. So he's been quite a few um, teams there, but everywhere he goes. He scores goals. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt. And Phil that. Boyer went with him. Phil Boyer was at Norwich City, That's right? right. Yeah. With him and, and Southampton, yeah. with him as well. I think I've got the drop on you two because I've actually seen Ted McDougall play, right? Yeah. And also, as I'm a good Inverness boy as well. Um, I, I clearly I don't remember him in Inverness, but I was <laughs> for my sins. Uh, my uh, my auntie got married on the Friday in Inverness, and. Uh, we were, my father was a great Scotland fan and he always saved up and saved up and saved up to go to Wembley and uh, for the every other year. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So the next day we were going to go to Wembley and he, he saw me in the kilt at the wedding. I don't think he'd, he realised I was wearing the kilt to the wedding. I was 10. And he said, when does the kilt go back? And he, um, my mum said, it goes back on Monday. He says, right, you're wearing it to Wembley. Yeah. So we went to Wembley. And Scotland got beat 5-1. and got absolutely you know, humbled that day. Stuart Kennedy was But Ted McDougall, I think, started and got hooked or the other way around. Um, was that the one that was really bad weather, really cold? No, was that not that one? It was cold in my heart. <laughs> I remember that much. But I mean, Scotland and Scotland had a good team. We were talking about that generation. You know, Scotland had a really good team, but Jer um, Jerry Francis scored two, I think, great goals mm. early on, and that was it. I mean, that was it. It was yeah. just you know, and Scotland Bruce Rio scored a penalty just before half time, right in front of us, and uh, I think it was still two one or three one at half time, and Scotland never got going again. Yeah, and just got, it was a disaster. So. Seven Scotland caps, scored three goals again. So, I mean, say anywhere he goes, he scores goals. But he was up against Douglas, he was up against Joe Jordan, he was up against Lou McCary. I mean, think of the the, uh, the kind of strikers that, mm. you know, and he, despite that prolific hit rate, yeah, he just never got a foothold in the squad for yeah. long enough to be anything other than a, a sub or a bit part player. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame. As I say, go back to these um, goal scoring. I mean, the the strike rate is quite frightening for that and not to get more caps. The only reason being because of the, the quality yeah. that was in front of him. Um, he's currently coaching the Atlanta Silverbacks in the United States. Um, he scored 250 goals and 256 goals in 535 league That's appearances. Not bad, is it? Yeah, yeah. He was raised in Inverness. He moved to Widnes, Lancashire, with his parents shortly after his 12th birthday. So he did grow up, okay, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, he netted nine goals in Bournemouth's 11 0 victory over Margate in the FA Cup in November 1971 in the first round. This is still the largest ever individual haul of goals by any player in the proper rounds of the FA Cup, although two players. Chris Marin of South Shields and Paul Jackson of Stocksbridge Park Steels have scored 10 goals in qualifying rounds. Um, when he finished playing at non-league level, he went to live in Vancouver in Canada, where he became a successful property developer. So he's tried his hand at a few things. And in July 2013, the redeveloped South Stand at Bournemouth's Dean Court Stadium was named after McDougall and recognition That's of great, his services. Um, and on uh, Phil Boyer, so he was born in Nottingham in 1949, and the teams yet yeah, Derby County, York City, Bournemouth, Norwich City, Southampton. So he's, I guess he's been at Southampton with um, Ted as well, Man yeah. City, and he's he was in loan to Belova in Hong Kong, Hong Kong, Grantham Town, Staffordshire, and Sheepshed Charterhouse, which I think we've talked about before. On a, I think they were in an FA Cup um, game and they, they auctioned off a programme or something like that. I've always wondered how much they got for that programme. <laughs> um, he made one England cap in 76. Yeah, he was the first division top scorer himself in 79-80. So I guess between the two of them, um, the goal score for York, 27, Bournemouth, 46, 34 for Norwich, 49 for Southampton. So, I mean, it does seem like a right, terrific partnership, that, for goals. So we're going to move on to pages Sorry, 10. can I just jump in here? Yeah. Can we go back to Inverness, uh, yeah. Mike? Yeah. So you're obviously an Inverness Caledonian Thistle fan, but can we go back to before the, the merger? Yeah. Were you a fan of one or both of the clubs? The word thistle does not exist in my lexicon. <laughs> uh, I, I 
I'm an Inverness Cali fan, and some people are Cali Thistle fans, and some right. people still say Thistle. And uh, I, you used to, but you don't nowadays hear one section of the, the home crowd would shout Cali, and then the other section would shout Thistle. And but that thankfully has died out, and right. and it's it's um, very much a, a a fixture in Inverness now. I only wish that more people would go. To the home games, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's so disappointing. You go to the cup final in 2015, and it was well, it wasn't the full house by any means, yeah. but there was thousands of Cali fans. Well, guys and girls, why aren't you there every yeah. other Saturday? Is, do you think that is because of the history of the? No, no, no. Yeah. I think, and it's not just a problem unique to Inverness. I just think young people have got too many choices and not enough money to sure. do mm-hmm. what. All of them, and I was very lucky, and I'm sure we were that our dads took us, or our uncles took us, or we yeah. went with our mates, and it wasn't that expensive. <clears throat> but you know, Inverness also has another team, Clacknacudden, which is in the yeah. Highland League, and there, you know, there's a thriving, maybe not junior football, but a, a youth football scene, mm. and Ross County's just up the road, and it's I don't know, I just think there's maybe too many options and too much choice. But I was I was blue through and through. So how did, how did you feel at the time that the two clubs merged? Because I, I vaguely remember hearing that oh, they hate each other as much as Rangers and Celtic. Nah, nah. Well, there was a huge rivalry and it was great because, in fact, Inverness had, in fact, Inverness had four teams in the Highland League at one point. There was a, the fourth team was called Citadel and it, it went bust in the 50s, I think. So three big teams. And in the Highland League, which is a very good league, no, even. But in the 70s when I watched Highland League football, you, you know, you got some cracking games. Yeah. Really good teams. Really competitive competitions and cup, there was loads of cups and the league was always very, you know, very um, tough to win. Uh, and Thistle had a, a beautiful ground with fant- a fantastic playing surface on the hill in Inverness, which is the it's called the hill, funnily enough, and it's in a very sort of plush, leafy, residential part of the town and it was, you know, kind of, there was a bit of, you know, the, the Thistle fans had a bit of a superiority thing going on. The Cali Park was on Telford Street, which was right beside the canal, right beside two distilleries, on the edge of an industrial estate. So there was a bit of sort of edgy, sort of chippy... Is that, is that like, the, is it Boca Studiantes or something like that, where one's the, the posher team and yeah. obviously at a lower, yeah. a lower sort of level than that. Yeah. <laughs> but there was a bit of that, but... Uh, but if, you know, by the time it happened, I was a, a reporter at STV, and I because I was a big football fan, the news desk could send me on sports stories as well, yeah. and which I wasn't hugely fussy about because I'd been a sports reporter and I didn't really enjoy it. I wanted to be a news reporter, but they sent me to Hamden on the day that Cali and Thistle were told that they were in the league, but they had to merge. Right. So I and I can remember sitting there, and I've still got the notebook at home somewhere uh, when the the. The draw, not the draw, the vote was taken and Cali got in on, and there were three or four conditions and one of them was there will be one space um, for an, a, a, an Inverness team, so work it out yourselves. Mm. And it, it was at that time that um, I think the, the Thistle Stadium was worth more because it was in a residential area, so the, that land was sold for housing and it made an absolute packet. Yeah. Whereas the Cali ground was sold for a Liddles and, uh, uh, you know, a carpet showroom or whatever. And it was a little bit... So the, there was all that, all that um, was thrown into the mix. And there was, you, know, you go out for a pint in Inverness and you meet guys who were Thistle fans and Cali fans and they just wouldn't, they wouldn't talk about football if they mixed at all. Mm. But 
I'll, and now that's what 20 odd years more 25 years so and thankfully it has that has been put to rest and it is one one team for for the town and quite right too and I can remember thinking well that's Cali's history gone yeah. but then that's thistle's history gone as well and they had you know they they had their period in the 60s and 70s when they were the the, the top team um and I just thought well Kesara if you want Premier League football or or in those days league football yeah. in Inverness and it was long overdue it was decades overdue yeah then you have to take the hit and say goodbye to your team you have and I hold my, the my memories of Cali uh, you know dear to me and I will f- hold them forever I hope but you know move on and let's get behind the the hybrid team and at the start it was called Inverness Caledonian Thistle which I thought was a mistake and I'm sorry at first it was called Caledonian Thistle and I thought that was a mistake. Then it became Inverness Caledonia Thistle, and I thought that was a mistake. I think get rid of the Cali, get rid of the Thistle. The team is Inverness, and just put it to bed. But they didn't. And well, okay, it'll always be Cali to me, perhaps wrongly. But and at the time, anybody who listened to me, I would sell them and get rid of the because the strips a bit of a yeah mess. There's, there's too much blue, and I you know I, I hate Cali to say that. the blue yeah, and Thistle with the red and black. Yeah. So these three colours don't go together. <laughs> and I said to everybody, look, you just have to can it, can the thistle, can the cali, it's Inverness, and we get a new strip. And what oh, what colours would they play in? White? And I said, no, no, because Clackna couldn't play in black and white, mostly white, and their nickname's the Lily Whites. And I said to anybody who would listen, sky blue. Because nobody else, in mm. this, apart from what, Forfer, yeah, yeah, in yeah. Scottish football plays in sky blue. Um, it's a lovely kit. And, uh, you know, I, that was my view. Anybody who, who asked me got both barrels. And sadly, none of these things ever happened. Yeah, good stuff. No, that's, that's really interesting. But you, but you very quickly made a success of it. Uh, well, and has climbed the leagues quite quickly and had a lot of big wins. I, I think he's very, very... He was, I think, perhaps too underrated as a player, John Robertson. Yeah. And as a coach, I think he's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's done... He, you know, okay, John Hughes won the cup and that was great, but that was a one-off and we rode our luck a bit that day. Um, Super Cali go ballistic, my goodness me, that was a one-off. And, you know, Dalgleish wasn't there as we've discussed. John Barnes maybe didn't, um, you know, impose himself at halftime as he should have done possibly. So Cali were all over them. But Robertson has... The, and I, I remember when we got promoted, when we won the... I sadly couldn't go, when we won promotion to the Premier League. And we were in the lower leagues for, what, 10, 12, 15 years. Fantastic. But for Cali, OK, those two cup games I'm talking about, one-offs, great days. But to get promoted to the Premier League, yeah. it's that, what an achievement that is. Yeah. That's exceptional for a small budget, small squad. Um, you know, I don't think he gets nearly as much credit. And whenever, when Levine left Hearts recently, whenever the, and the Hibs manager left, I always get, and I still get this frisson of panic mm. that Robertson's going to go. <laughs> and I hope, well, I'm sure he will eventually, but I, I, I know, I, I hope he stays. Yeah. No, I, I, I rate him as a manager as well. And I, I, I think he's, he's done exceptional. He, he had the spell in Ireland as well, didn't he? I think, um, John Robertson. I couldn't tell you. Don't yeah. know. I think we've discussed that before. But Okay, so back to the, the magazine. We're on pages 10 and 11. And it's two full pages of colour photos. Uh, first one of Derek Posse of Millwall. And the other is of Kevin Keegan of Liverpool. 
Um, now the Kevin Keegan one, I, I'm assuming it sort of has a feel to it as if it's taken during a warm up rather than in play action. Yeah. Um, we've got somebody in the background just sauntering about as if he's. Yeah. So, but it's just again, it's it's classic Kevin Keegan. You know the 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 big sort of sideburns. Yeah, and the the sort of bell shaped yeah. sort of haircut. Yeah. Um, classic Liverpool all red strip, um, white collar yeah. and cuffs, and. We talk about this all the time. It's basic, but it's it's just so classic. Yeah. You don't need all the you know the the different tones and you know fancy designs on the no. tops and stuff like that. It's classic. It's simple and it's unmistakably yeah, Liverpool. Absolutely. And the or, the orange ball there as well. The the leather well orange brown leather ball there as well, um, which is probably just I don't really remember playing much with that particular. Type of ball as a, as a you know any point so maybe it was just um, out. I mean this was seventy two. I mean I was born in seventy two. So yeah. Um, but it's just yeah, it's beautiful. I again, love, I love things like again, that. Again, I think this is probably an early season game. Yeah. That they've taken off the off the um, you know out of the files. Two or three things about this picture. Um, it's and it's also obviously as you say either early in the game or in the warm up. Because there's not a mark on them. There's no mm. mud. There's no. Uh, they're not a hair out of place. <laughs> Two or three things. Ian Callaghan was a great player. Keegan, who would have got kicked up and down all day long, is not wearing shin guards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he ever did. Um, Ian Callaghan's shorts have been washed yeah, probably eight times more than <laughs> Keegan's. Yeah. Uh, and you can imagine Shankly going to the kit man. You need to get this fixed because that just doesn't look right. Yeah. You know. But then. Shankley was the kind of guy who would say, I don't care about the strip, it's the guy inside it that matters. Mm. But, you know, uh, you're right, there, Callahan's probably just jogging over, was he a left winger or a right winger? Right winger, I think. Uh, uh, he's probably jogging over to the outside right position, Keegan's about to pass that ball back to the dugout and just the referee's probably just blown up to get yeah. right it's, it's almost It's almost that look as if they've been lined up or something and then the yeah. referee blows a whistle and, and they all away. Yeah, exactly, away. That's exactly that. that um, and... You know the pitch is good. Uh, there's no mud. There's no the ball's clean. It's just it might even be the might even be the opening game. Yeah. Do you know what? The more I think about it, it's like there's probably about a two week window when these photographs could have yes. been taken, and after that, that was that. There was mud. And the pitches were awful. Yeah. Um, what else was something else I was going to say about the picture? I mean, just look at Keegan's expression. Callahan's in a quiet, um, you know, quiet place, quiet space. He's quite happy. Keegan, look at his face. He is driven. Yeah, he is absolutely pumped. Mm. And I've never met him, and I'd like to have met him because I always thought he was a real football man. Mm -hmm. um, And you know, he's passionate. He's um, he's just everything you want in a footballer, Mm -hmm. except he didn't have a Scottish granny. Because my goodness (laughs) me, what a player! Yeah, Uh, there's some um, photographs I've got of him. I think Scunthorpe it was, wasn't it? Yeah. And he just looks like a a wee boy, Mm -hmm. and he's. He's, he's like a, a stick as well. Yeah. He's wearing this kit and it just looks as if it's, you know, taking an adult strip and putting a 12-year-old boy in it. But he's, you know, he's obviously worked on himself because yeah. he, he became oh, a right yeah. oh, yeah, physical, you know, yeah. body-wise. I, I read somewhere, it might have been in his own book, he said that on a Saturday he would play four games. He'd play for the school at 10 <laughs> o'clock. He'd play for his boys' club at 12 o'clock. He'd go to another youth club at at one o'clock and he'd go to play for his big team at three o'clock I mean how he had the strength and stamina to do that mm. uh, See, and 
I think when we had Alan Jack in, we were talking about this, how you wouldn't, nowadays you'd be lucky if youngsters played four games in a week, mm. never mind in one day. It's just like, you know, it's fixed. They'll play, in, if they play during the week, they'll play once and then they'll play at the weekends. They'll be lucky if they play during the week as well. So, I mean, that's, I think four is a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I know a lot of people who play maybe two in, in, the, in the same day, but yeah, four's, the boundless energy, as you say in the picture there, that's <coughs> that's obvious there for them. Um, so we jump to page 13 and we have Shooting Around compiled by Peter Stewart. So this is a bunch of little stories. Um, so the first one, Billy Bremner, who's he? And Peter Stewart says, reading through Melody Maker, I was interested to see singer Ronnie Hilton has recorded a disc called The Ballad of Billy Bremner. Anybody heard of it? Tom? Have you yep. heard Billy? Okay. It's maybe something we can YouTube I and see. I thought we were going to have an MP3 of it to yeah. play as When you say we, who did you? Who, who was getting that? Me or you? I thought you would have. I thought you <laughs> would have found the 45 at home somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But so Peter Tarati says, I was staggered when I read the comments of the critic reviewing the record who'd never heard of Billy Bremner until we'd been informed by a colleague. Come on, my mum doesn't know a thing about football, but she's heard of Billy Bremner. Uh, so the next one is McLean fails and bids. This is about Jim McLean. It says, Jim McLean, the new manager of Dundee United, has failed in a bid, a recent bid to buy Doug Houston from their very close neighbours, Dundee. Now, Jim would eventually sign uh, Doug a couple of years later for £10,000, and he would go on to make 107 appearances and score five goals. Um, next one has got a photograph with it and it's arrested at Millwall and say there's nothing quite there's nothing in football quite like a dug at a football <laughs> game is there so this article has a photo of a policeman carrying a wee dog behind the goals and the dog is absolutely enraptured by what's going on in the park I don't think he can take his eyes off it and by that he's probably following the football isn't he um, he looks relatively young and unperturbed by the whole thing and this happened during a Millwall QPR game it's just there's something about dogs and football that just you know make you make you laugh and make you happy. Uh, there's also mention of a Celtic friendly. Celtic are due to play um, present Russian league champions Dynamo Kiev at Parkhead on Monday the seventh of February, and they say it should be a real cracker. Now the game itself was described as a success and entertaining, and Celtic won one nil, um, but they had to be at their best to win it. The goal was from Dalglish with McCarry setting him up in front of 41,000 fans. I mean, so. there's so much in all of that. The the Russian League champions are a team from Ukraine. Yeah. Um, obviously now, today, the, the relationship between the two countries is difficult. Uh, you talk about McCarry setting up Dalglish and the crowd was 40,000. 40, I mean... That, that'd be a mid, that's a Monday night as uh, well. Yeah. And yeah. incredible. Um, so there's also talk about Air United delay match so Air United delayed the start of the league match against Kilmarnock on January the 3rd <laughs> to give their fans time to get to the ground from the nearby horse racing track uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not too familiar I checked in it but I'm not too familiar with the, the geography of Somerset Park and, and the, yeah, the just, just but it's it's, track, it's yeah. not far at no. all um, so I, I can't imagine why this would be news because it probably would happen every week so, unless they were expecting a, a larger than usual crowd. Well, it was the New Year's Day derby, yeah. or the New Year's. Um, so the first would have been the the, um, the Thursday or something. Yeah. And Saturday was the the big big 
uh, day for the for the for the derby. But there must obviously have been a a, a New Year race meet on as well. Yeah. So uh, and maybe some sense. of the, maybe some of the players were there as well, well and that's why they delayed it. So we've got young Scott heading for the top. This is about John Blacklaw of Leicester City. Now it's a name that I hadn't really heard of. Uh, he says, a lad from Aberdeen who's destined for a big future in English league football is 16-year-old John Blacklaw, recently signed as a professional by Leicester City. He's the brother of former Burnley goalkeeper Adam Blacklaw, and he was invited for trials. He played three games, scored in two, and he was immediately signed up by manager Jimmy Bloomfield. He formerly played for ALC Thistle, the Scottish junior club that produced the likes of Ron Yeats, Dennis Law and John Fitzpatrick. And he'll team up at Filbert Street with another Aberdonian skipper, John Schoberg. Is that how you pronounce that? Schoberg? So ALC, I, I, I wasn't sure what that meant. Um, and I checked on Twitter and it's apparently Aberdeen Lads Club. Oh, I was going to say Aberdeen. And it, it, it does have different endings to the name depending on the period. So it could be ALC Thistle, ALC Dons. And, you know, there's, there's been other names for it. Now, regarding John Blacklaw, I couldn't really find any other details about him but I found some on his brother Adam who played 318 for Burnley 96 for Blackburn and one for Blackpool and he actually has three full Scottish caps as well between 63 and 65 okay at this point should we do a a focus on yes absolutely so what we'll do so rather than the focus on the magazine we're going to turn it on yourself and I'm going to ask you some questions (laughs) now you can choose to answer or not answer anything that you want um, but we'll just fire them so, full name? Michael Andrew Edwards. Birthplace? London. Okay. First car? Oh, don't ask me, but I have no interest whatever in cars. It was a red one. Okay. <laughs> oh, it was a mini. It was a mini. A red mini. Yeah. Right. Favourite player of all time? Kenny Douglish. Was that quick enough? Brilliant. Favourite team? Oh, Inverness Cali. Okay. And Scotland. Most memorable match? Oh, here. How long have we got? <laughs> Now, well, it would be the 2015 Scottish Cup final is the first. Second most memorable match would be the Super Cali Go Ballistic Nights, which we say yeah, we discussed uh, 20 years ago. Uh, in, in, in order, I would say the next most memorable match was, and, and not just for the game, uh, was Sweden against Scotland in Genoa uh, in Italia 90, mm-hmm. when... Uh, Sweden were much fancied. Scotland had just been humbled by Costa Rica, yeah. and uh, we got off the the coach near the harbour or on the waterfront, and we, along with, uh, I mean, tens of thousands of fans of both countries, walked up this dual carriageway. In the middle of there were so many of us that I think the police had suspended the traffic. And we just <laughs> this army of people uh, up to the stadium. And hugging and dancing and drinking with the Swedes because the Swedes are, you know, football crazy yeah. as we were. Absolutely brilliant. And Scotland just played out of their skins that night and and won well. Um, next most memorable, um, and both at the same stadium and both into the same goal. I was in line with Zinedine Zidane at Hamden when he hit that goal in the two thousand and two uh, Champions League final, and I could see it happening before it happened. Yeah. I think as a, as a football fan, you're drawn to the star players, aren't you? Yeah, and I was yeah. I tried to watch him, tried to watch the game. Yeah. I was more interested in him, and how he just how he held his body and how he his poise and all. And the, the, there was a long ball played forward to the outside left position. I think it was Roberto Carlos was quite far forward, and he volleyed it back towards the D. And I could see Zidane just absolutely total spatial awareness. Mm-hmm. 
watched this ball come down and I could see what I could see what was about to happen and I knew it was going to go and it did. And the rest of the game, I'm afraid, apart from the proclaimers playing, um, um, it was, you know, a blur really. But yeah. the the that goal, and I'm so glad I was there. And into the same corner of the same goal in 1984 is my next game, Sp- Scotland Spain. Uh, Douglas is on the right, gets a throw in, turns and used his strength, his his Back blocking, yeah, <laughs> his blocking ability yeah. to shield and turn. And as he came cut in, and I was on the other side, I was on the Zidane side, if you like, and I saw him uh, coming in, and I thought, I know where this is going. He's going to hit it with his left, and it's going to go into that corner. Bang, and it did. So that was the, what's that, four or five? How many did you five, want? Five, I think, just the one. <laughs> oh, sorry, right, oh, okay. Well, no, yeah. that's fine, that's fine. Um, okay, so what's your biggest thrill? Ever? Yeah. My wife won't listen to this, so I don't have to say <laughs> getting married. Um my biggest thrill ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been very lucky in my life. I've I've been very lucky that everything I've wanted to do professionally, personally, um, I've, I've managed to do by the time I was 40. Uh, so I, I think getting my first book deal, being uh, sending a novel off to get pu- to the public. I mean, I sent it to every publisher. <laughs> And four publishers came back and asked right. for for the for the rights to, to print it. So that I think probably. Uh, but if she is listening, darling, I love you. And our wedding day, it was our <laughs> uh, was the greatest highlight of my life. Okay, we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> What's uh, your biggest disappointment in life? Yeah. Actually, seriously, um, my dad died young. He died at 62. Yeah. Uh, and he, my dad was in the Royal Navy during the war and he'd had a lot of, you know, he, his, he was on destroyers in the convoys in the North Atlantic and he'd been torpedoed and U-boats and he'd had a, quite a serious time. And as all men, I suppose, of that age, he was a heavy smoker and a heavy drinker yeah, and he yeah. died at 62 mm-hmm. and I was 22. And uh, I would just love to have had more time with him just mm-hmm. to, you know, even a year, even just to um, try to understand, try to help him if I could. Uh, I Maybe I would have been unable to, but I just, you know, th- that I think is probably what I regret most about life, that my dad wasn't, and he was a great football man. I mean, mm-hmm. he, you know, uh, all, this, all the experiences I've had subsequently in football, he would have loved. Yeah. He would have loved Cali winning the Scottish Cup. Oh, he would have loved Cali getting into the league and not yeah. just the Premier League, just getting into the yeah. league. That would have been a huge thing for him. Mm. Okay. I mean, I, I feel that as well. I mean, I was about the same age when, when my dad died and I think it's the experiences that happened after yeah. that, that you think he would have he would have enjoyed yeah. this, he yeah. would have loved this. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that I do with this, he would have, would have been right up yeah. his street. Yeah. But um, yeah, unfortunately not. What's uh, the your biggest disappointment? That's what I've just asked, isn't it? <laughs> See, I've got to carry that. Give it <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I just got, I think uh, got a bit thrown there. He's been asked that question twice, it's quite disappointing. Yeah, I, w- I would say we'll cut that out, but I know that's not going to happen. What's the best country you've, <laughs> what's the best country you've visited? Uh, again, I've been very lucky. I've been all over the world. I would, I, 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 for no political reasons, for no reasons 
other than it's a fantastic place, I am drawn to the United States and I go two or three times a year. Right. I just think there's so much to see, even though there's not a huge amount of history, there's so much to see. You've got deserts, you've got jungles, you've got mountains, you've got valleys, you've got lakes, you've got the oceans, um, and the people uh, are just, everything is geared to you as a as a consumer or as a tourist or as a visitor or as a uh, just as a person. I just think it's a fabulous place to visit. Uh, I loved Malaysia. I thought that is a beautiful country. Um, and I lived in Switzerland for, for many years in the 90s. So after Scotland, I would have to say probably Switzerland would be my favourite country in Europe. What's your favourite food? Anything except anchovies and capers. Okay. What's well, spare ribs probably? But spare ribs, miscellaneous likes. So just give me two things that you like doing: writing, reading, um, peace and quiet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just like sitting with a book yeah. in front of the fire Good and a, a large whiskey. So and on the other the other side, um, miscellaneous dislikes. I, I the older I get, the more intolerant I am of crowds right. and noise. I, I hate noisy people. I hate people who are inconsiderate in public. Uh, I, my wife and I went out for dinner last week and we were hemmed in in a corner table and we were surrounded by a, like it was a boys' night out. And that's fine, fantastic, yeah. it's great, you know, fantastic. But table of 12 there, table of six there, and we were in the corner and I couldn't hear myself think. Mm. And I, it just spoiled it for me. Okay. Well, if you don't like crowds, you should maybe come watch Clyde Bank. I was going to say, well, I'm right at home in the <laughs> Cali then. Yeah. What's your favourite TV show of all time? Hill, Hill Street Blues. Oh, that's, um, that's a great show. Yeah. That's a great um, show. And, you know, the family sit and watch Love Island and all this. I'm just like, do you know what? <laughs> no, I'm not a fan of television at all now. I worked in television for long enough and I, I just, I know how things are done. I know how things are made. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't like being you know, suckered into watching a box set or a series of, you know, that, that hasn't worked for me since the, since the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and I would, having said that, I would watch a film uh, on DVD or whatever and I'd maybe watch it six times. Yeah. And the, in the old days, I would go to the cinema six times yeah. because I loved the way it was lit, I loved the way it was edited, I loved the way the music and the sound and all that. And mm. people would say to me, but you... You've seen that three times. I said, yeah, and I'm going to see it four times. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. it doesn't really work for TV now for me. Yeah. Well, just, sometimes you're watching, I'll go to the cinema and I'm watching a film and it's that good, I'm thinking, when can I go back to see this again? Aye, it's yeah. already it's halfway through, I'm like, I need to go back to see this. <laughs> I mean, I've got a massive collection of DVDs and people go into the house and go, why, why have you not got Netflix? I thought, There's something about the same way as you would with a record. You yeah, take yeah. it out and you look at the cover and you look at the lyrics and it's just... And I would maybe spin through a DVD to get to a five-minute bit where there's a really great dramatic, um, you know, build-up of of tension or whatever and stuff like that. Mm. But, but I, when I worked in television news, I made a movie every day. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it was a minute and a half long. Yeah. Still a movie. Yeah. Had characters. It had a story. It had pathos. It had humour. Yeah. And it had pictures. I loved working. Well, that with was pictures. actually something I was. We'll jump into it now. I was going to. I was going to uh, ask you about because you, you'd said earlier on you wanted to do news reporting rather than sports reporting, and obviously you were in courts a lot. Yeah. And I was just wanting to ask you a wee bit because obviously you heard you were there for a lot of the infamous yep. Scottish cases, and you've obviously heard a lot of harrowing evidence. Yep. So how do you process that, distill it, and then put it out there to the, the country uh, effectively that evening? Uh, 
total 100% professional focus. And I did the job, I hope. Uh, well, I would have been told had it not been good enough very, very quickly. So I did what I had to do. I asked the hard questions. I sat through the post-mortem evidence. I sat through the videos of children being, you know, and yeah. it was horrific. And uh, But I did it and that was my job. And I asked the difficult questions of grieving people and uh, I did that because that's what I had to do. Yeah. And the other thing is, if I hadn't done that, my boss would have said, I'm going to ask him because if you're not doing it, yeah. he'll do it. And that was my mortgage going to be paid or not paid. So it was my job. And uh, I, I, for the first sort of 20 years of uh, my career, I lived in Shawlands and then I lived in Gifnock. So it involved a train journey. And I used to get on that train at night and just switch off the professional head. And then I would think to myself about the people, about yeah. the, human, uh, the human cost, the human version yeah, of... Yeah. of uh, what had happened and think about the poor victims. And now that I've retired from that aspect, I'm more and more uh, devoting my time to charity work to try, and I know this sounds really corny, to try to give something back because I want to help people. Uh, I've got an involvement with Crime Stoppers, the charity, uh, with the Violence Reduction Unit, uh, with victim support, with, you know, I want to try and help the victims or help people in, in any small way because I feel I owe something back because my career has all been about me Mike Edwards on the telly Mike Edwards in his books Mike Edwards in his army career and all the rest of it and that was a life I lived because I I had to mm -hmm. I, I was the job I was the face of being described as the face of crime well <laughs> you know it's in a way that's true but now I'm just like no I, I want to uh, you know I want to try and help people now okay. so you don't have an interest in these uh, two crime podcasts and series and all that that are but no, I'm coming out of the out of the woods a wee bit here. I, I was actually uh, for a time bef just before I retired, I found myself staying up late at night watching true crime documentaries, and some of them were from America, so I didn't know the yeah, case. Yeah, good homework, Yeah, but I would I could my tr my train of thought was such. Everyone else had gone to bed, but I'd be sitting up till one in the morning, going, I know what's going to happen here, and I know what how he's going to do it and I know how he's going to dispose of the body and then I'd, I'd sit and sort of slap myself and for goodness sake what, this is what you've become you know and it wasn't a bloodlust it wasn't a macabre you know voyeuristic thing yeah. it was it was a cold professional you know I've seen a murder trial in Edinburgh that what happened here was this is what he did yeah. this is how he groomed this woman or whatever and, and this is what happened in this programme repeatedly and I just thought you know you've got to Change. You've got to get out of this, um, you know, this this way of thinking because it's not healthy. Yeah. And it's not. No. I mean, you, you would ask a sports reporter the same thing. He'll maybe go to a, a game on holiday, and he's been used to watching Scottish football. It's exactly the same thing. He'll go, well, I know what's going to happen here because that's the way the game goes, and this yeah. is what happens. So I suppose it's some kind of a parallel. Mm -hmm. Not able to switch off. With, well, I have now. Yeah. Yeah, I have now. Totally. Uh, in fact, I've flipped the other side. I'm now the I'm now the gamekeeper, as opposed to the poacher. Okay. I just um, I want to just because your, your shout of um, Hill Street Blues really got me because I loved that show. Yeah. But it was it really was genre defining. Yeah. It was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that, yeah. and um, that's where all the cop shows and even the other shows yeah. 
have came after yeah. that. So hats off to that. That's a great show. Stephen Botchko is a producer, mm. and he developed this style, even though it was shot on film. So the picture quality nowadays we're used to UHD and HD, and it's pin sharp. Mm. But that, but the, that it's the same way that some yeah. of these photographs are. It, the graininess of the film adds to the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But he developed this thing, if you watch it, and this is maybe a bit geeky TV type thing to say, all the good parts of it were handheld. So mm -hmm. that you have a cameraman who, or woman, who is holding the camera. Yeah. Very little of it shot on a locked off tripod. And that adds to sort of flying the wall, it adds to sort of just a feeling of in a busy police station, um, you know, that that's what it's like. And mm -hmm. and and as you say, the, well, then NYPD Blue fell out of that. Yeah. And then now they're all like that. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely love it. Uh, Favourite singers? Singers or musicians? Let's lump it together. So okay. singers, stroke musicians. Uh, the Rolling Stones, Run Rig, Tom Petty, Jeff Lynne, George Harrison, um, Steve Earle, The Boomtown Rats, the Skids, uh, Simple Minds, uh, ELO, Jeff Lynn ELO is the same sort of thing. Um, and that pretty much, pretty much everything, uh, if it's got a tune. I don't mind anything as long as it's melodic. I love classical music, but I know nothing about it. Mm. I've always got classic FM on in the house or in the car. Uh, and I love it, but I just don't really know very much about it and yeah. I'm, I play a bit of guitar I used to play the piano when I was a kid I love music but um, it's just finding time with family mm. and all the rest of it too yeah. Favourite actors? Phil Hoffman Philip Hoffman mm -hmm. sadly no longer with us um, I thought I just thought he had a colossal talent um, I sadly had a very very traumatic lifestyle and, and uh, issues I think um, Phil Hoffman was just... Um, Any particular performances? Uh, when it, his depiction of Truman Capote. Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think, is, yeah. is, is his stage name. Um, he was also in Doubt yeah. with Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, yeah. I had, I had my own views on, the, on the, the film and the script and the story, but he just played that... Um, part immaculately. Uh, William H. Macy is another actor who I think is, is his face and his 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 uh, body language, apart from you know his his voice and his delivery of the lines, but just his whole. Um, I'm sure there's an acting word for it, but his whole <laughs> demeanour, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, he's just a fantastic uh, actor, and Meryl Streep as an actress or actor, as everyone is now, and she's. Um, you would just believe her in any part she played, I would think. Mm -hmm. But Phil, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think, would be my first first okay. pick. Um, I like um, films or TV dramas, not that I watched that many of them, to have um, a real edge to them. And I like actors and actresses to, to, to be able to live that, that part and tell that story. Mm -hmm. Okay. Who's your best friend? Ronald McKenna. If he's listening, which I doubt he will be, he is a former journalist, 
He is a um, solicitor and he is the food critic in the Herald newspaper. And he and I worked as journalists at the Press and Journal 31 years ago. And uh, we sat opposite each other and... Um, I mean, I'm not very tidy, but every morning I used to go in and I used to push his stuff back <laughs> over his to his side of the desk because he's the, the untidiest man. But a, a lovely guy, great reporter, dear friend. I'm godfather to his son, uh, uh, his wife, and we're all really, really close and really good friends. And but Ronnie's one of these annoying guys that would he would fall in the Clyde and strike oil. Yeah. So he was. He's got like three or four degrees. He's actually I hate him. You know? <laughs> he's got a law degree. He's got a maths degree. He's got a geography degree. And he worked in banking. He worked in journalism. And now he's a lawyer. So uh, goodness knows what he's going to do next. But uh, okay, who's been the biggest influence on you? Do you know what? It's funny you say that because I was, I was thinking about. Um, I'd read something recently, and and. Uh, whoever it was, I, I can't remember, uh, was talking about his his or her influences, professional. Mm -hmm. And I, one of the reasons I regret my dad not being around is that uh, I, I, I was unable to ask for his advice. Um, my mum, God love her, uh, you know, she had no understanding of the business that I was in. And to be honest, my dad really didn't either. Uh, so my biggest motivation, and it's a really selfish you know, belief is that I, I basically got up off my backside myself mm -hmm. and just set myself, you know, goals and targets and all the rest of it. Because I knew, because nobody knew the business that I was getting into better than myself. Yeah. Uh, and I knew that I grew up in, in the highlands of Scotland where there are maybe three or four media outlets. And by the time I was 24, I'd worked for them all. And I knew that I would have to leave to go to Glasgow or Edinburgh to, to get on. Yeah. And, I, and I did. So, you know, nobody, uh, I can't think of, there was journalists I looked up to very, very much so. But uh, as a motivation, I just uh, set that alarm clock and just got on with it. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Who, I mean, this comes back to, you said you've, you've pretty much done all your goals and things. But which person in the world would you most like to meet that you haven't met? Neil Alden Armstrong, Martin Luther King, and John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Okay, so that's a question uh, you've been you asked know, before. <laughs> uh, Jan Janice Forsyth used to do a BBC Radio Scotland programme on a Saturday morning, and I threw a threw a haze of <laughs> lager fumes from the night before I'd sit and listen to this because the music was great. And she, whoever guest she had on, she would say, "Who's who would be your ideal three dinner guests?" And I, oh, I just automatically <laughs> said, "If they ever ask me, that's who I'd like." <laughs> I, I just. You know, I spoke earlier about being fascinated by America and the history, not that there's that much of it, but my goodness me, what there was, was fascinating. And particularly that period in the 60s, the late 60s, um, or maybe just, well, obviously Kennedy was assassinated in 63. So, but t could you imagine being around the table with these guys for dinner? Mm. You're the first man on the moon. Uh, you know, you've got the, the leader of the free world who stood up to the Soviet Union and you've got the leader of, of this, the biggest civil rights movement in history. Three very, very different men who yeah. had very, very different lives and who had very, very different experiences. Yeah. But my goodness me, what, what, what a conversation. I don't know what conversation I could have unless they could talk football. So. Well, I don't know. I don't think... It would I'm, 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 I've been a wee bit... Um, <laughs> Joking there, but yeah. so we've got a new sponsor, which is Celtic Match Day Programs. 
which they have a. Do you want to talk through the website a bit, Tom? What's what's available on it? So, Celtic Match Day programs, a digital Celtic FC program archive. What we've got is a number of Celtic programs year by year. Uh, some of the years are a bit more in depth at the moment than others, but I think the idea is we're going to get. Celtic programmes from 1950 up to the present day. So they're all on there, scanned in in PDF format and uh, all easy to find by year and then uh, chronologically by matches. And uh, we're going to just have a wee look through some of them. I've picked out a wee handful of them. I don't know if you had a look through, Andy, and picked out anything yourself. I've not, but I did have a look through. So firstly, CelticMatchDay.com, all one word, CelticMatchDay.com. And as, as Tom says, it's, it's, you know, you just click on the, the higher menus and you get a drop-down list of all the different years. Um, I had a look through one or two of them um, and just even looking at the, the covers sort of, you know, took you back to, you know, being, being a kid and seeing some programmes floating about. Um, I see also there's there's a ticket section as well. A lot of that seems to be coming soon. Um, so, well, it's more the older ones is coming soon, but they do have lots of various years. And obviously some, some is it blogs, evolution of the match day programme. So there's lots of different parts in that. So there's absolutely loads in there. Um, but if you want to pick out one or two of them, Tom? Yes, I Well, one I was, I was picking out was from... Fourth of August, nineteen sixty-seven, Hampden Park, Friday. Fourth August, nineteen sixty-seven, for Queens Park Centenary. Uh, Queens Park versus the British Amateur Select and Celtic versus Tottenham Hotspur uh, on the Saturday, the fifth of August. It's a double program. Uh, so, obviously, Celtic fans are actually wanting to own some of these. Some of these programs are uh, will be worth thirty, forty quid. But if you want to get on and have a look at the information uh, in them and some of the cracking photographs that are in them as well, uh, this website's an absolute treasure trove. Uh, a lot of the programmes programs vary over the over the years. Sometimes you'll get a little bit of um, team news, a couple of photos and then lots of adverts. But as you look through the programmes, this one in particular, they've got tons of information and uh, this one's got the three uh, story of the three Hamdens and uh, Queen's Park's history a hundred years on, and there's a couple of there's a couple of cracking photographs. I'm just this, gonna I'm just gonna, I'm just looking through it, and the Queen's Park one from sixty six sixty seven. The one the name that jumps out to me there, standing one two three fourth from the left, Eddie Hunter, um, who right. obviously went on to manage uh, Queen's Park for quite a few years. I mean, he was he was a player with him for many years as well and yeah he's a, a bit of a legend there um but yeah i mean the, the quality of the actual i mean this one in particular i mean the fact that it's got some color in terms of text and things and um graphics is quite unusual as well um so th there's certainly been a quite a bit of effort put into this yeah, yeah there's, 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 there's lots on queen's parts history and then there's like you say the the club at the time, and there's also be pen picks of Celtic players and Spurs mm -hmm. players, and uh, it, there's a great picture of the Celtic team at Parkhead with the European Cup and their mm -hmm. and their Blazers. Obviously, uh, fresh from that, really. It'd been yeah, I think that was when, when they when they went to Parkhead for this public uh, 
parade of the, the trophy. And that program ends with a great picture at Hamden Park from the from the sky, uh, which I think we'll maybe tweet out. I've, I've found a couple of pictures from the from the, the program archive that we'll, we'll maybe uh, tweet out uh, as well. So yeah, so that's just an that's just an example of one of the programs and the tons of tons of info. Uh, that you can you can find in there. I, I, I mean, see for a, a Celtic, for a Celtic historian, or for somebody who's just sort of getting to grips with the club's history, whether that's a young fan or uh, or somebody who just wants to delve in a wee bit deeper into the club's history. Well, I see an absolute goldmine uh, stuff on this on this website. Uh, a, a lot of Celtic's programs, certainly in the last 20 years, and when I've been to a Celtic game, it's absolutely packed with information. A general Celtic program and, and interviews and uh, a, a lot of historical stuff uh, and, and recent and recent programs as well. So you'll you find all that. You'll find all that there. Like I say, if you want to dig into Celtic's history a wee bit, but other couple of programs I had a look at. I'm just going um, to say there, Tom. Before you, you know, it's not just. If you're interested in Celtic, that these are really useful. I mean, for example, this Queen's Park, there's lots of information in there. There's a team photo that you might not see otherwise. So, you know, for fans of other teams, you know, hunt out your own club if you want and look, you know, try and find some information in it. So that's definitely yeah, well, that's, one way that's to use something it. else I was, going to, I was going to come on. The next program I was going to look at was uh, from 1983, a famous European game. Uh, I think Celtic had many famous European games of the 1980s, but this is certainly one of them. This was the night Celtic beat Sporting Lisbon 5 0 in the UEFA Cup, second round, second leg. And uh, again, a great wee programme in colour, loads of uh, black and white photos, some pictures from the first leg in Lisbon. Chairman's welcome message from the manager, David Hay. And then there's wee, wee pics of the, the players with their signature. Presumably, there might have been a lot of credit card fraud and Celtic players. And that era is uh, you can get a, a perfect uh, reproduction of all their signatures uh, for this for these couple of pages. And uh, scrolling down, there's a wee feature in 1967 and uh, the European, not just uh, the European Cup winners' medal, but all, all the medals that the players won uh, that that season for all the for their clean sweep of the trophies. Uh, and then a great wee feature on sport in Lisbon. And again, when you look through some of these European uh, programs and that World Club final that Celtic played there's wee pen pictures of European players that you might not find yeah sorry I'm not sure if you're going to point this out and I'm sure you are but the coach Sporting Lisbon there yeah it was a future Celtic manager yeah Joe Vengloss Joseph Vengloss yeah but again the wee, the wee uh, pen pictures of the players you might not even find if you go online uh, now you might not find English uh, pen pictures of the different uh, squad players uh, that were around in these European clubs at the, at the time so uh, again, st- stuff like that. It's, stuff like that's good. And uh, for 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 us, uh, Andy, there's, there's there's stuff like uh, adverts. Yeah, you know, the I was just looking at that. The tenants, uh, one. charger, charger yeah. lager. <laughs> uh, the tenants, strong the lager. Probably. Anything that's described Bar- as strong lager, you got to watch. <laughs> Alcohol-free yeah. lager from yeah. Barbican. Uh, and and that has a wee record of Celtic's European complete European competition up to that point as, as well, <laughs> yeah. which is great to kind of think of the things that were packed into programs mm. at, that, at that time because that's the kind of thing you wouldn't have found you wouldn't have found anywhere else. Yeah, no, at that time. Okay, so that's Celtic match. I mean, what we'll do is we'll look through a few more of these um, through the the other podcast, but that's CelticMatchDay.com, and I'm just going to quickly. I think it's Celtic Match Day on Twitter as well, is it? 
Yeah. Celtic Match Day. So at Celtic Match Day on Twitter, uh, CelticMatchDay.com, but you'll find the links on the web pages for the podcast as well. But I mean, it's it's all there. It's all perfectly free. You know, it's 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 scanned to great quality, which is you know always like that. Um, and you could you know you could spend a lot of time just looking through that stuff. So the as I say, Celtics Match Day are, are sponsoring the 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 podcast. So thank you to them, and you know let's help support them go through it. So you don't need to be a Celtic supporter to to appreciate it. Nope, there's Rangers home programs there, obviously against Celtic, but obviously information about the Rangers at the at the time and we there's we uh, player profiles of you know Rangers or Dundee United or whoever the home club whoever the home club might be as well. So like you say, you can find out a lot of stuff about your own club as well. Excellent. Okay, thank you. Shall we jump back into the magazine? We'll jump back Tom? Into the magazine. Yeah. So we're on pages sixteen and seventeen. It's a centre page spread and it's George Best. Oh, it so this is so what we've just done is a focus on and this is the focus on of George Best. Now, it's very unusual to see a double page spread focus on. In fact, I don't remember apart yes. from this one seeing anything. It's George Best. Well exactly. I, I mean it's George Best is a special case. Um, so he's he's, the, he's got his hand his arms crossed, long black hair, That's red man United top, yeah. white wing collar. Um, and cuffs and it's just yeah it's it's classic George Best um, so just look at some of the the answers so his favourite car the 12 cylinder E type Jaguar uh, that means that I'm, I'm not, not a me. car man I'm exactly the same as you I, I don't know I, I know what the words mean in isolation but put them together I don't know what that means in terms of whether it's a good car or not favourite player Alfredo Di Stefano favourite other team Spurs most difficult opponent I love this answer none <laughs> I mean that's just that's, that sums up George there biggest thrill every time I score biggest disappointment not playing in the World Cup finals favourite food Chinese best friend my bank manager biggest influencer Matt Busby and person most like to meet is Bridget Bardot or Cassius Clay? Well, uh, uh, personal ambition to be happily married. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I, we shouldn't laugh so heartily at that, should we? But um, yeah, some some great. Uh, that that most difficult opponent, none, just speaks so much yeah. about his confidence and you know. Use a lot of players. Everyone. Yeah. Every player. Yeah, yeah. Um, so on to pages twenty-two and twenty-three. And uh, we're still on George Best here. So this is the world of George Best. And it says, The trouble with soccer, there's more losers than winners. So George says, Ask me what the best, the very best thing is about playing for Man United. And I'd find it hard to pick out just one answer. Unless I plump for the word prestige. Results are checked by supporters and admirers in all parts of the world, irrespective of how good or bad United are doing. I never stopped telling people how lucky I was to start my career at Man United. Last season, we pulled in nearly a million fans to Old Trafford for league games. George says that being with United means that he just doesn't have to contend with struggles for survival. Best goes on to say, The fact is that being on top gives you a whole new attitude to life. At United, we walk tall. I think of the clubs who struggle over so many years when virtually every game is a matter of sheer survival and I realise how lucky I've been. I want a clean break from the game when I reckon my playing days are over. The idea of sliding down the division and maybe even ending up in the Southern League or something just doesn't appeal. 
Now we know that yeah. isn't really what happened, is it? I mean, they ended up at Hibs for for goodness' sake. Um, so on to pages twenty six to twenty eight. So this is um, about. It actually says eight Scottish stars. So it's about their greatest goals. So they they look at eight Scottish stars reveal to shoot their most satisfying goals. Now I've actually counted this up. There's nine. So I think that's not a great start from shoot there to get the number wrong. So the, the people they're going to look at is Kenny Dalglish, Tommy McLean, Arthur Graham, Jim Brogan, Alfie Conn, Harry Hood, Sandy Jarden, Roel Jensen and Pat Stanton. So we'll start off with Kenny Dalglish, who's at Celtic in Scotland. So Kenny finds it difficult to select one goal from his many superb counters. At the start of the season, he played in three old firm games and scored in all of them. And he says, I'll never forget those goals. The first one I scored was a vital goal in a League Cup game and it came from a penalty. I would say that one, although it was possibly the easiest, or that one was possibly the easiest, was the one that I got the most pleasure from. The score was 1-0 to Celtic at the time and Joe Hughes was pulled down in the box. The tension was electrifying when I stepped up to take the kick. I strode up and cracked the ball low and hard into the net as the keeper took off in the wrong direction. He says watching the Celtic fans erupt in a sea of green and white was an experience that he thought he'd never find again. But two weeks later he scored another. And he says this one was made by Bobby Murdoch who split the Rangers defence wide open. I was left completely in the clear and I swiftly cracked my shot high into the net. It was a goal that broke the deadlock in the game they went on to win 3-0. Kenny's next all firm game came a couple of weeks later as they were trailing 2-1. He says, a corner came over from the right wing and I took it first time on the volley to send a low shot into the corner of the net. I can't really pick out one as being better than the others. Now, actually, I, I thought he'd already done that. I thought he'd <laughs> said the first one was better, but there we go. So on to Tommy McLean of Rangers. So Shoot says that Tommy has scored a few goals for Rangers since arriving from Kelly, but it's not one of those goals that he picks. He selects one from a league match for Kilmarnock against Partick Thistle six years ago. So Tommy says, Kilmarnock were awarded a free kick about 30 yards out and as the Thistle players arranged the wall, I made up my mind to have a go at goal. It wasn't a bad shot, but somehow a Thistle player managed to block it and the ball rebounded in my direction. I timed my, vo my back volley to perfection and caught the ball just at the right angle and it sizzled into the net and passed keeper George Niven. I can still see the net bulging in the right-hand corner today. Brilliant. And then next up, Arthur Graham, who's Aberdeen, and says, Arthur will never forget his first goal for Dons. He scored it against Celtic, the team he idolised as a boy. So Arthur says, I come from Glasgow and all my brothers are Celtic fanatics. We used to go and watch them at every opportunity. So this game was extra important to me as a player. My big moment came in the second half when there was no score. A cross came over from the right wing and as the Celtic defence hesitated, I nipped in on the blind side to head the ball firmly past keeper Evan Williams from six yards. And he says, I felt great when the ball hit the net and I felt even better a few minutes later when George Murray scored a second. So in that game they finished 2-1 winners. And he says, several weeks later we defeated them again in the 1970 Scottish Cup final, proving that our win against them at Parkhead was no fluke. Next one up is John Brogan, uh, uh, Jim Brogan, sorry, again of Celtic. And uh, Shoot says that Jim is one of the finest defenders in Scotland. His favourite goal comes from another old firm game, this one being the New Year's game where Celtic took the lead um, six minutes from time, um, or they took the lead until six minutes of time when Colin Steen equalised. Both teams then pressed for the winner. 
So Jim says about the goal, Harry Hood was filled inside the Rangers half and I decided to add my weight to the attack when I saw Billy McNeil preparing to take the free kick. The ball went to Hood and I was still running at full tilt when his cross came over. I was determined not to rush myself and decided to place it. I did just enough to direct the ball away from the keeper and into the net. So it seems that, um, certainly with the Celtic Rangers players, it seems to be pretty obvious where their favourite goals are. <laughs> yeah. um, so next up, Alfie Conn at Rangers. Um, he says he's no doubts about his favourite goal and it earned Rangers a place in last season's Scottish Cup final. So Alfie says, we played Hibs in the semi-final at Hamden and were held to a 0-0 draw in the first game. The tension was at fever pitch in the replay. Willie Henderson scored for Rangers before Jim O'Rourke pulled it back for Hibs. There wasn't long to go when a cross from the right suddenly arrived on my left foot about 12 yards from goal. I let it swing and I knew as soon as I connected with it that it was be a goal all the way. Um, so we've got a couple, well, we've got three more to talk about, four more to talk about here. Um, but what just what I love is how they, they remember so much of the detail about it. And maybe some, you know, because not all the games would have been televised and probably not all the goals would have video, but... Um, I just love how they can remember how these goals happened, what was what was going on in their mind when it happened as well. The thing that the thing that gets me about the particularly this part of the magazine is the access mm-hmm. that whoever wrote this got. Yeah. That doesn't exist nowadays. Yeah. Does not exist. In those days you'd phone up and say, any chance of a sit down with Kenny Douglas? Aye, what time can you come over? Nowadays the clubs control everything so yeah. closely. Players are so careful, generally, unless they particularly want to be sensational. And if they'd say anything at all, it's generally through social media. Or there's a huge fee involved. So as a, one of the reasons why I'm glad I wasn't a sports supporter for particularly long. Um, you know, it's a different world today. Yeah. Uh, clubs have got... I mean, I remember when I started... Well, actually, it wasn't that long a goal really I suppose that you know the Scottish League or the or the Highland League or each club would issue a handbook and in the handbook would be the address and home phone number <laughs> of you know maybe not the manager but certainly the you know you could phone up the physio and say um, when's, when's John Smith likely to be fit oh he'll be he'll be back for the Rangers game no mm. you just would not get that yeah. and the access that, that okay this is like 45 years ago um, these would have been these interviews would have been done Properly, yeah. You know, yeah, if yeah. not in person, and certainly on the phone, just doesn't happen now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely. That's fascinating. So we'll we'll go to Pat Stanton. Um, so at Hibs, so it says when Pat scores, it's normally a truly spectacular effort. But two are top of his list of crackers. And Pat says two seasons ago we played Celtic at Parkhead and weren't given much of a chance. They scored first, but we equalised just after half time through John Hamilton. With just a few minutes left to go, I scored the goal I will never forget. The ball was worked out of our defence, and when the final pass landed at my feet, I just lashed out from around 30 yards, and my shot flashed past the groping keeper in, into the net. It's amazing how all these shots are flashing and zooming in. Um, his other one, he says, my other special one came against uh, last season against Aberdeen at Easter Road. The Dons had gone 12 games without losing a goal. At 0-0, I was upfield when a, mo- a move broke down in the edge of the Aberdeen 18-yard box and I saw my chance. I hit the ball first time and it simply flashed into the net with Bobby Clark making a valiant effort to save it. They went on to win 2-1 that day. Yeah, 
I mean, if you're not going to um, talk, know, it, talk up. it up, Aye, of is, course, yeah. yeah. So Harry Hood's the next one at Celtic, and it says last season's top scorer with 28 goals. His top score, top goal wasn't with Celtic, but while at Clyde against Wraith Rovers. He says it's a goal I'll never forget. Our keeper Tommy McCulloch kicked the ball out from his own penalty area, and somehow I knew it was going to land right at my feet. I was running with my back to the Clyde goal when it arrived and I caught it first time from about 35 yards and it sizzled high into the Wraith goal. I got a hat-trick that day and scored many more since, but that's one that will always be on the top of my hit list. I mean, that one actually, I mean, it sounds like a great finish, but it sounds route one. Mm-hmm. Kick from the goalkeeper and there we go. They all count. Yeah. So we're on to Sandy Jardin of Rangers. Uh, it says, Sandy has many admirers because of his calm and tidy defensive work. But five seasons ago, he was an attacking wing half and it was then that he scored the goal that will live with him forever. And Sandy says, We were playing Celtic in a vital league game at Ibrox in really heavy weather. About ten minutes from half-time, Davy Smith dragged the ball down the left wing and I suddenly saw my chance as he played in the cross. I met it from 25 yards with my right foot and the ball screamed into the roof of the net. Celtic pulled it back a minute later. And the game ended 2-2 to give Celtic the point they needed to clinch a title. Even so, Sandy still remembers that special goal. So that's quite unusual. That, <laughs> I'd be keeping it? quiet about that one, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite unusual, the fact that, that the, the result of it and what it meant, but still his his goal. Yeah. I think his most famous goal came a couple of months after this uh, this magazine. This is February 72, mm-hmm. so Sandy uh, Jordan scored the first goal against uh, Bayern Munich in the semi-final. Yeah. Uh, the Cup Winners' Cup at Ibrox in the second minute or something like that. Mm. So he, he's... Answer might have changed a couple of months. Couple of months <laughs> I'm later. guessing it would have changed. Yeah, he, pro- he was probably hoping for something after that. So if that's the best I can come up with. So Roel Jensen of Hearts. So at the time of the magazine, he was back in Norway playing in the first division, and he scored a goal with Hearts against Celtic that was called a fluke by some, but it was certainly a goal that will never be forgotten. So Roel says we came to Parkhead knowing that we would be on the defensive for long periods. But we were 2-0 up by half-time, and I scored the sort of goal that others dream of. The ball was played to me out in the right wing, and Celtic left-back Tommy Gemmel missed his tackle. The ball ran towards the byline, and normally I would cross the ball, but I noticed keeper John Fallon had the left side of his goal exposed. I hit the ball with the outside of my right foot, and it curved viciously in mid-air to leave the keeper helpless and rock it into the net. It was my goal of goals. There was actually um, there's a photograph there which sort of shows it, and I, I can't believe I haven't seen the action of it. But just from that and his description of it, it seems as though he meant it, mm-hmm. and it looks as though he meant well, it. Well, look at just that defenders' faces. Yeah, they're all going. And then Billy McNeil's one of them, and Tommy Gemmell and uh, Jim Brogan. But I don't think it was really a common thing with the balls of those days to be able to do that with the ball. To make it, you know, you know, you you kick it with outside of your foot and it curls around like that. So, you know, he's, he's obviously just caught it really well. But I think because people maybe hadn't seen it so often, they thought, oh, that's a bit of a fluke. Um, um, I've had dealings with several of the people we've just discussed. Okay. And Sandy Jarden, without question, a prince among men. Yeah. A fabulous player and a really decent, understanding, intelligent guy. Uh, he was a manager of or the co-manager of Hearts when mm-hmm. I worked at Radio Fourth in Edinburgh, and he knew what we wanted, and you know he went out of his way to accommodate as much as he could. And off off mic, off camera, he was just such a nice guy, and yeah. and, and again died tragically young. Yeah, sadly, master. And a great player as well. Mm-hmm. 
So I think um, there's actually, if you just go back a page, I think a couple of the photos are from the actual goals that they're talking about. So I, th I think um, the Kennedy Leash one and the Jim Brogan one is from the, the, the goals that they actually speak about there as well. So that there are photographs of it. The rest of them are all just these fascinating, picks, flo yeah. the floating head pictures that, that was so common in these magazines so it was, it's just the head and there's no neck or body to it um, which that that word did seem to be a, a thing of the time doesn't it um, so on to page 29 um, we've got some adverts to look at here oh yes um, so it's the one the world of wonder and it says what shall we play tomorrow and it says it's the colourful magazine bringing the past present and future to life Every Monday, only nine pence. So it's actually more expensive than the shoot magazine itself. Um, and some of the things they talk about is amphibious car rallies, hover tobogganing, <laughs> cross-country parachutes and aero car races. And it says, all these could be the sports we shall be watching and playing in tomorrow's world. Um, and there's a free 20 map stickers for your quiz ball of fun and knowledge. Just fix one to each face of your sphere and not only will you have another super game to play but also a great globe of the world. I mean, it just sounds like a right boys magazine, doesn't it? Um, certainly one that I think I would, I would have loved as a wee boy. There's a... You. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The... Um so, so of its time, mm. these adverts, I mean, all of them. And, and I remember, we may come to it, there's adverts for the cine film yeah. of big games. Yeah. Whereas, obviously, now kids get it on their phone or whatever, you get anything now. But, you know, we didn't get a video recorder or player until 1982 for the World Cup in 82. Mm. And the, the prospect of being able to record something, whether it was football or, or anything, and then watch it at your leisure, was just... I mean, that was... It was revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in the Highlands of Scotland. I'm sure you're fed up with me saying this. <laughs> we didn't get colour TV until 70... Well, certainly the 74 World Cup was in colour. But, but I, because of some oddity with the, the TV transmitter, we would get black and white programmes until 7 o'clock at night. And then we'd get the <laughs> colour programmes from 7 until close, but only on BBC Two. Right. And I'll never forget that it was... Uh, Alias Smith and Jones, and um, uh, what was that family family quiz program that Robert Robinson used oh, to yeah, present? Yeah. Family quiz, whatever, and it was the two programs that were in colour. So the prospect of sending off to a, a magazine to buy a cine film of a game was mm. perfectly natural, and not that we ever did it, but you know that's what people did. Yeah. The prospect of a, a video recorder was just like a, it was. A, mm. It was a different world. And these are, these magazines used to be uh, used to be full of you know sixty eight cup European Cup final Manchester United Benfica here's the cine film mm. eight millimeter cine with sound yeah so you yeah. can just imagine you get the projector out get all your mates round and you know crank this thing up to watch mm. football I mean we we spoke about this before and it was it wasn't something that ever happened in my life so I I never saw anything on the projectors or that but it's something as an adult now. And you know, loving the, the nostalgia thing, I'd love to do it now. I think it would just be a really immersive experience sitting in a darkened room, and that you hear the clicking of, yeah. of yeah. it going. And, and even if it is in silence, 
I think there's there used to be something, you know, the the the, the shadows on the wall and stuff like that. I think it's absolutely magical. I, I, I genuinely think it's going to be something I'm going to I'm going to do is go and buy a projector. Well, that's yeah. how I, I watched the, the Champions League final. Hmm. A lot of us had a because uh, I, I rent a, a desk space out in Bridgestone and a lot of people in the other in the other offices kind of thing we've we done that we hired a projector and put the Champions League final up and, and yeah. had it all set out like chairs and rows and kind of things uh-huh. like that yeah. and, uh, but everybody just talked we never heard the comments comments it was playing but you never really heard it because yeah. everybody was just talking but, but that's the thing I mean you're talking about stuff on YouTube you can just boom and it's there whereas you have to go through all the setup. I guess it, is, it just popped into my head, and I think there is Subutio on this page. It's, that's for me was Subutio was like that. Mm. It was all about the setup. Yep, it was all about the floodlights and the. But I, I don't really remember enjoying the actual playing of the game. It was mm. all just about ah, look at that. That's brilliant. <laughs> right, I can't. I can't be bothered playing with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. But just on this page as well. Ask the family. Ask, ask the, the family. family. That was family. it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, was, it, was that from a producer? Did the producer get no, that? No, that was my. I would never. Have, I would never have got that. <laughs> Come on, Diane. Where are you with this? So we've got Rams bottom and an Adidas football boots. Okay, so we've got the Brazil, which is a top value, low price white moulded sole at three pound twenty five. I mean, look at the price of these things. Uh, just... We've got the Inter, which is a white moulded sole with screw in studs, good quality leather, four pound forty. Santiago was a stylish leather upper yeah. with heel tendon support, fitted with replacement screw and studs. £5.40. Now, the thing they sort of say the same sort of thing, just slightly differently. It's like one's moulded with screw and studs, and the other's one with replacement screw and studs. So, what's the difference? They're both screw and studs. I don't get it. No, the, I can tell you the difference. The difference was the leather, because uh, when I was at school, um, two or three of my. I never got into the school team apart from the last day of the season because we had such a, a fantastic number of players who were you know miles better than me several of whom went on to play Kevin McDonald went on right, to okay. play um, right, he, he, he was a, yeah he was uh, I I'd just gone into first year when he was just leaving but he was in the school team but anyway but you know my my age there was loads of guys but two or three of them were signed up with Inverness Cali or with Clach or whatever and the club gave them the Santiago's Mm -hmm. and you would be playing at gym or at PT and you'd pick up his boot and feel the difference between and and one one guy said he picked up my boot and I picked up his boot and he said "Ah, your your boot's made of the stuff that they make sofas out of and his was really soft kangaroo leather yeah beautifully soft even though it had been wet and Mm-hmm. Dried and polished and all this, it was beautifully soft, yeah. and that's the difference. And they were mm-hmm. Santiago's, so it's, it's that extra pound worth it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so we've got the gym, the gym trainers as well. So they've got the, these white leather uppers, molded rubber sole for three pound and nine pence. <laughs> it's just a strange. You wouldn't even get a bovril and a pie. The for thing that. is, the pe- the pennies were important. Oh back yeah, then. yeah. You know that that penny was important. Yeah, and, and twenty pence post and package, but the Santiago's are post free. Right. Oh. Mm-hmm. Encouragement to, to buy them instead, yeah. eh? to yeah. spend that extra. Exactly. Pound from Good marketing. Good marketing. Pence, probably. Yeah. Uh, so, beautiful table soccer. So, here is a game where victory or defeat depends upon the skill of the player with the fingertip control. Complete with goals, balls, and teams available in all league club colours. All the thrills of League Cup and international football. Dribbling corners, penalty kicks, offsides, goals and saves. I mean, with that, what, who wouldn't want to buy that? Yeah. That's basically football. 
Um, the prices, I'm a little confused about how they've done the prices bit here because they say between £1.20 and £2.70, but they don't say what that is. But yeah. then they go into the different, the World Cup edition is £7.90, which is quite expensive. Yeah. International, £6.50. Floodlighting, £4.90. Now, I'll never talk about Subutal Floodlighting without mentioning the fact, and I say this every time, they were rubbish. It's like the the amount of light that they cast, and I, and I keep saying I think they actually sucked light out of the room. For some Did you have the lights on at the same time? No, 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 no. Oh, you put no. the lights off, but then it's like I can't see anything. I can't see anything. I can't, you know. So the the floodlights were, and plus I remember they took the big um, the big batteries. That's right. And ah, they were just yeah, yeah. And so if you've got four of those, you need eight batteries, and they're gone like that. They're gone, and it's like there's no way. You're getting another set of them off off your mum. Oh, I know. I know. So there's no way. There's no way. So I can um, tell you the difference. What well, the difference in prices? And I've, I speak with a bit of authority. Right. That's right. When you got your Subutio set, it would have the green beige cloth. Yeah. It would have the two goals. It might even have had the corner flags. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a couple of balls. Yeah. In it, it would also have had two teams. So it'd be Liverpool and Everton yeah. generally, the blue strips and the red strips, or Scotland Wales or whatever. If you went to to the shop to buy another team. If it was just a blue jersey, white shorts, blue socks, they were £1.20. But see if you wanted Airdrie or Blackburn Rovers, who had the, the, yeah, the p- panel half, half and half. The, whatever team required a bit more paintwork, <laughs> a bit more intricate paintwork, yeah. that's, where, that's where your extra £1.50 went. Right. Because I quickly ran out of £1.20 teams because we've got Liverpool, got Everton, got Wales, got Scotland... And if you wanted, um, and I don't know why, but I, I did have Airdrie for, for, I can't remember, not for any particular reason that I supported them or anything, but I think they were the only, I, I had one, £2.70, it was burning a hole in my pocket, and I went, oh, right, give us a, give us a team, what have you got? Airdrie, aye, that'll do. Yeah, yeah. So. Okay, so that, that explains that, that's fascinating. Uh, display, £1.70, I don't know what the display, or oh, is it a display edition? But what would that be? I don't know. Any ideas? So, hey. you, so you've got all the floodlighting so the, club display. Well, we'll never find out. That's that's a question that's never going to be answered. I don't care if, if you search it online, Tom. It will never be answered. <laughs> so, um, page thirty. So, I was just going to jump back to to Mike. Uh, okay. Speak a wee bit about your uh, writing career, yeah. Mike. So you, you said that you'd uh, so you've written a novel and you've written a, a memoir. I've written uh, and oh, well, I've written many books, but only two have been published. Right. Um, I've, uh, my novel Friendly Fire was uh, I, I've not mentioned this so far, but I'm a, an officer in the Army Reserve, the TA as it used to be, and uh, I was mobilised for active service in Iraq and Afghanistan. And in Afghanistan, uh, in Iraq, it was a war, so we did you know there was no <laughs> there were no comforts, I assure you. But in Afghanistan, I was in a, a barrack block because I was working in a, a, as a staff officer in a headquarters. So although we were out pretty well every day, uh, every night I went back to my room. And uh, because I knew what my job was going to entail, I knew this was going to be, uh, you know, I'd, I'd have a desk and a chair at night. And I thought, well, if you're going to Afghanistan, you should write about it. And once I got there, and I was there for four months, uh, I realised that if... if if, if I couldn't write a novel around what was happening, and not, not so much what was happening, but where it was happening, 
and with whom it was happening, then you know you couldn't really call yourself any kind of journalist or writer. So I, I'd, I'd had a, I'd had an idea for a novel, but I had nowhere really to set to set it until I knew I was going to Afghanistan. Then I thought, well, you can take that off the shelf, take it with you, put it there, and um, I was only there days when I thought, I right, you, you cannot fail. Yeah. You cannot fail in a place like the smells, the views, the people, the children were just, you know, it was absolutely amazing. And uh, so I'd go home every night and I shared a room with a, a senior officer who was very poor-faced. <laughs> what, what are you doing? And I was like, tapping away, you know, for hours at night. And I battered out this novel called Friendly Fire, and um, which is still available. Um, and... When I got back, I tidied it up and gave it to a couple of friends to say, look, have a look at this and, and, you know, just tell me, just be brutally, bluntly honest. And we spoke about my pal Ron McKenna, his wife, Debbie. She's a, a primary head teacher and she has that eye and that mentality uh, of, of a sub-editor, if you like. And she she absolutely rinsed out the manuscript, absolutely rinsed it out and said, no, here, here, there, there. And then, you, you know, when you hand over a manuscript to a publisher or to anybody... It's like handing over a baby. Yeah. It's yours and it's precious and it's beloved and, and mm. all of these things. And it's it's actually quite... I found it quite... Um, a, a really emotional moment because you've... you've it's like handing over possibly a child or, or something that you've loved and you've nurtured and you've cared for and you've worked towards, you know, making it complete. And when you hand it over, you think it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And when the... the uh, Publishers tend to either take forever or they're very quick when they say no. And they say no for a whole host of reasons. And it's not always just that it's not good enough. It might just not fit their catalogue or it's not the right time. Or they've got six projects on the go and actually they don't really need a seventh quite yet and all the rest of it. Generally, it's because it's not good enough for them. doesn't mean it's not good enough. It means it's not good enough for them. So um, when the letters of of rejection came in, uh, I was like, all right, okay, well... Well, there's another, there's another 51 publishers to get back to me. Uh, and I was so lucky because four publishers offered me a contract. Mm-hmm. Four. And for a first-time novel, uh, I thought, actually, do you know, that's actually not bad going. I was, I was quite chuffed. Uh, and the, the process went from there. And I, I, my best friend, uh, Debbie McKenna, she... Um, Although her husband's a journalist, uh, he, he, uh, he, he, she's a, a primary school head teacher. I would, I all everything I write, I give to her, and she has the, she has the eye of a teacher, obviously, but she also has the the knack of a sub editor, and she absolutely brutally bluntly honest, and she just tells me she red pens what she thinks and all the rest of it. So, um, and she went through the manuscript, and the other thing is, you know, I've been a journalist for forty years since I was a kid, and you know. If, if you are offended by somebody changing your work, then you're in the wrong job yeah. because it doesn't matter who they are or who you are or what you write or what you broadcast. Somebody's going to say, you need to change that. That's not what we're looking for. You know, that paragraph four belongs, paragraph two, drop the drop intro. We're going to do all these things. And I learned very quickly, build the suit of armour. You need it because you're going to get so many dunts and so many slaps and elbows in the face. You just need to, if you were serious about this, you get on with it. Mm. And and that really did help when it came to, um, you know, the, your manuscript going back and forth. And, and then, so all I'd say is making your work better. 
Well, uh, the the second book, I, well, I've written, I don't know, 12 books, but the second one that got published was a, an autobiographical travelogue called The Road Home. And uh, I'm from Inverness, as I'm sure you're fed up with me saying. I travelled across America without flying, so I went uh, by road and rail uh, from the Pacific to the Atlantic via five towns called Inverness. And that was the gimmick. Mm-hmm. And uh, that manuscript took t- 12 years from, from flash to bang. But when I handed it over, I was a mature, you know, 53-year-old man. And I, uh, I thought, well, nothing can hurt me now because I've done this so long. It's just like, it's just part of the process. But my goodness me, when that manuscript first came back, I didn't recognise it. And I thought, and I, I, could, I could feel my sort of dander getting up. Going, how dare you? How dare you? Do you know who I am? Do you know all this kind of stuff? Well, I've never, ever said that to anybody. But to myself, I said, have you got any idea who you're dealing with? And then I read it. And uh, he didn't send it back to me with red pen through it. The publisher, who, had a, who was an editor as well, had basically made the cuts himself and yeah. had sent me back this colossal world word file. And I read it. I might even actually have printed it out and read it. And I thought, do you know what? Actually, you know, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to tell anybody this. That's <laughs> actually brilliant. What he's done here is brilliant. And I read it and read it and read it. And I thought, do you know what? I'd never have thought of that. And it was much, and, and yeah. silk, silk purse sows here, and it was. And he also tellingly uh, reduced it in wordage by, I don't know, maybe, maybe 15%. So if he says it's too long, it's too long. Yeah. Um, so when I got that book back, uh, I barely recognised it in, in parts. I, I, what I had done was I'd gone to the five Invernesses, but I had done them out of sync. I hadn't done the journey and I'm giving it away, folks. <laughs> if you read the book, it's one story from West Coast to East Coast. I didn't do it like that in reality. And I went to America, must have been 20 times over uh, 12 years, uh, two or three times a year, and visited uh, the Invernesses separately. So it was something like, there's Inverness, California, Inverness, Illinois, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. Well, uh, I did California first, and then I did, then I did Florida, then I did Alabama, then Mississippi. So it was totally out of sync. So when I wrote the book, it was like five chapters. And the editor somehow got like a, like a soldering iron and also a silk cloth to, <laughs> to join those joins uh, and to smooth it out. And he did it brilliantly. And what if you, and I suggest you might want to read the book, there's two things that are not mentioned in it at all. One is the, the, the season, because I went to, I certainly went to Illinois in the fall because it was beautiful colours. And it would have been great to write about that, but I couldn't mm-hmm. because the next trip was to Mississippi and that's, um, you know, in the, in the summer. So the next Inverness in the story is in the season preceding Aye. the previous one. Yeah. So that just wouldn't work. And when I went to Inver- uh, Inverness, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, Barack Obama was the governor of Illinois. When I went to Inverness, Florida, he was the president. <laughs> so, you know, I, I didn't mention the American political system okay. or uh, elections or Bush or, 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 or any of it. Uh, and when I started, uh, Clinton was the president. When I finished, it was Trump. So I couldn't, there was too much of a time span right, to, yeah. to, to do all that. So... Um, yeah. So, what, what's your uh, your focus in writing now? Are you going back to um, 
fiction or I want to get back to fiction. I've got uh, I've got a great character, and I've got I think there are too many taggarts out there. There are too many detectives, and a lot of my pals are crime writers. And I'm sorry if I'm saying the wrong thing here, but I think Taggart was a Scottish detective television phenomenon without question. We all think Mark McManus, and we all think. Um, um, the, the more modern version of the of the programme, which still bore uh, name. Taggart's name and it still bore Mark McManus's, um, you know, voice and the the just that gruffness. But Alec Norton was a very different Taggart, yeah, yeah. right? But that's a that's a TV thing. I don't think you could have as many Scottish crime genres. Uh, as there are, I, I, I think there's too much of that. So I did deliberately moved away from uh, that idea. You, so you've appeared in Tiger, is that I right? have, yes. I, I actually appeared as myself in the 100th Tiger. Um, uh, that was a great, that was a great experience. Um, I, I felt my career was complete <laughs> in the, the face of crime on television and Tiger. Um, so the, but the, the character that I'm developing is more of a. I, I like to say in the pitch letters I've been sending to publishers or in conversations with publishers is that this is a, a Scottish character somewhere between James Bond and uh, Jason Bourne. So he's a Scottish, I wouldn't say spy or secret agent, but he is an ex-military officer who is retired from the military and gets, somehow just gets embroiled in events like, uh, you know, major world global events. And I, I think that character lives. I think um, there is enough colour in his background, and I think there is enough going on. I mean, my goodness me, look at look at what's been happening over the last couple of years with Brexit. With we've got the coronavirus, you've got the global events. There's always something big happening, mm -hmm. and you can put a character if you're if you're clever enough and if you're fast enough, uh, and you're you know you're good enough with your footwork, you can put that character anywhere. Yeah. And that's what I plan to do next. Okay, so, great. look forward, look forward to it. Yeah. Okay, I'm just going to quickly go back to the magazine here before we finish up because I want to look at page thirty here, um, which is a colour photograph of Sandy Jarden of Rangers kicking a ball with Aberdeen Steve Murray, Murray. in close proximity. So the article underneath it discusses each player separately. On Stephen Murray, it says one minute Steve will be powering through the middle, running onto a pinpoint pass. The next he'll be back in his own penalty area, clearing the lines. His first full Scottish cap was reward for his consistent displays. And Stevie thinks that the Dons can win the season's league championship. With him around, they could. And on Sandy Jarden, it says, He is the sort of player every manager dreams about. He's young, talented and, above all, versatile. He looks set for a long career in the number two shirt. But at club level, he had a spell in midfield, a successful one at that. Sandy used to also be a sprint champion and this has helped him in his career as a footballer. In what position will Sandy eventually settle down? It's hard to say. He's so adaptable. Um, and just a, a quite a, um interesting fact that I picked up from another. It was an um, ask question sort of thing on Sandy. The reason why he was called Sandy. So his real name is, is it William Puller Jarden, I think it is. But when he joined Rangers, he had reddish ginger hair, and so Sandy has stuck ever since. And he doesn't. He, I, I don't think that the hair's dark there. But it's just strange how nicknames 
get born and you know last the test of time as well so at this point I'm just wanting to so we have a, a charity partner um, called Back On Side which I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of or not but they, they do they help people with mental health issues and just going to read out something here which describes what they do so here in the UK one in four people experience a mental health illness each year mental health includes a person's emotional psychological and social well-being an obvious widespread problem yet is estimated that only a quarter of sufferers receive ongoing treatment leaving the majority of the UK population tackling tackling these debilitating issues on their own here at Back On Side, we have recognised this ongoing dilemma and are determined to rebuild a society where no young person or adult is left tackling mental health problems alone. So Back On Side, that's at Back On Side on Twitter. And um, what we do with the podcast as well is we have a donate button. So for each podcast, we also have a corresponding web page set up. So it will be the stuff that we talk, we've talked about. There'll be links to things we've talked about, videos and things. So you can actually... As you're listening to it, you can scroll through the page and read along with us, which, you know, it gets interactive as well. But there'll be a donate button on that, and for every pound that um, you donate, 50% will go to the, the charity partner, and 50% will go to the podcast. But what that pound will do is essentially buy you a raffle ticket, and what we'll do is, we'll after the show, we'll get you to sign the, the super size one, and we'll also include this as well, the original magazine, and we're going to try and throw in some books and things like that and maybe some other stuff from my collection. And, you know, it'll go into the raffle. Whoever gets that will be basically get a goodie bag of things from the show. Great. So if, if you're listening to this, back on side, you can get all the details on Twitter or on our webpage. Um, but please support support that. Um, our website is shootthebreezepod.co.uk. That's shootthebreezepod, one word. .co.uk our Twitter is shoottb underscore podcast um, and I'd like to say a special thanks to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of Story of the Blues as our intro and outro music and you can catch up with Pete on www.petewiley.co.uk and uh, lastly but no means leastly we'd like to thank our producer Diane Jarden for her great work and support in the podcast and you can check her out at www.transmissionroom.co.uk. And when I say you can check her out, I mean that you can check out the business <laughs> where you can book music recording and the rehearsal facilities in Clank Bank. So what, what's actually what's going on with you at the moment? Is there anything you'd like to... Um, I am a charity ambassador for Alzheimer's Scotland, mm-hmm. and I'm looking forward to doing more uh, work for them. I... Uh, my mother was diagnosed with uh, vascular dementia five years ago mm-hmm. uh, and she sadly passed away recently. I was her carer for the last nine months of, of her life. So I, I want to do more for such a, a worthwhile charity. And, and you know, let's face it, uh, we are all going to be affected some way, whether yeah. we are going to receive a diagnosis ourselves or whether most likely we're going to be a carer. Or a or a, a a child of somebody with a diagnosis. So if I can do anything at all, I'm happy to do that. I also and it's something that I hold really close to my heart is the football memories sessions mm-hmm. with yeah. with Alzheimer Scotland, and also the Erskine Hospital, which is a fantastic charity. Obviously, being a, a an officer in the reserve myself, uh, what veterans do and what how they are cared for is is a, a cause that's very close to my heart as well um i i write i uh, i'm a, 
a, what is it they call it? a homemaker. <laughs> uh, I, I do the, I keep the house and I have the dinner ready and all the rest of it. I write and um, I just, I'm approaching my 55th birthday and I'm just, you know, relieved and happy to be healthy and looking mm. forward to helping other people because up until now my life has been about me and I realise that uh, that's, you know, clearly I've been very fortunate down the years that I want to give something back. Okay, but what I'll do is I'll contact you, I'll get all the, the links to these things and we'll make sure that that goes out with the Great. podcast as well. Great. So really appreciate that. So on that, I'd just like to thank everyone for listening, for downloading and as we always say, if you like it, if you don't like it, same thing please share it get your friends involved as well let's you know get some feedback on the podcast as well that, that'd be really good but on that I'd just like to say thank you to Tom let's be careful out there <laughs> oh that's a great ah, reference I like that <laughs> uh, if you get that well done thank you Mike it's been an absolute pleasure my pleasure you. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself this uh, this session it's been brilliant it's right up my street mm-hmm. and uh Great, well done. Great work, guys, and thank you for having me. Thank you. Okay, and thank you, everyone. Until next time, let's shoot the breeze. Yes.